Hello, my name is Ran and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode we interview inspiring movers, thinkers and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. Happy 2018! Joe and I both hope you had a relaxing holiday break and are ready to kick off into the new year. I know we are. We have some really exciting interviews coming up over the next few months and I can't wait to share them with you. We're starting off 2018 with a great episode, one I've really been looking forward to. Today's episode is a recording of a conversation between myself, Joe Stewart and Lee Blaschke. Lee Blaschke is a legendary figure in Australian yoga. He was a founding member of the Yoga Teachers Association of Australia, now known as Yoga Australia. He was the founder of the Australian Institute of Yoga Therapy, is a past president of Yoga Australia, a member of the Council of Advisors for Yoga Australia and the IAYT, and also served the IAYT on their standards, accreditation and certification committees. Indeed, he has been instrumental in building the standards and professionalism of yoga in this country and is widely regarded as the father of yoga therapy in Australia. It was an absolute honour to sit with him and record this episode. There's so much good stuff in this conversation and I've talked way too much already, so let's get into it. Stick around to the end of the conversation for our picks of the week. Oh, thank you so much for joining us today, you're, Lee. You're welcome, Joran. <laughs> Would you like to start by telling us a bit about your background and where you grew up? Well, I was born and raised in Melbourne and had my formative years here, I guess you'd say, schooled in Melbourne from a typical middle-class family. I went to school right through to finishing year 12 and um, a little later did some, um, didn't, didn't do tertiary studies straight away. I, Took a little time, some working, immersing into yoga, basically meditation, early days, and then took up uh, studies later on. And um, yeah, so yeah, typical, typical sort of upbringing, though. You know, family life, picnics on Sundays, and you know all that stuff. Nice. Would you like to tell us a little bit about your first discovery of yoga and your first forays into that world? Yeah, yeah. It's it's really interesting that in a way, yoga. I came to yoga. Well. I always bundle yoga and meditation together, but yeah. I'll use the word as though they're separate to some extent for the purposes today. So I, I really started with meditation in the, in the late 60s, where a, a lot of my friends uh, were quite happy to experiment with you know, soft drugs. I mean, just smoking grass and a few people dropping some pills. And there was no way I was going to touch that because I was actually born with uh, some health issues, two congenital heart defects and some other stuff. So I thought, no, I'm not going to get involved with that. So I'd come across meditation, and that seemed to be something that I was attracted to, and, and when they were sitting there, say, hey, man, isn't the world beautiful? And I'd say, yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. So you just found another way to expand your mind yeah. and your consciousness. That's right. I, I had clean lungs and, oh, <laughs> and, and felt the same thing in a way. So so in a way, the, the health issues really were the messengers that brought me to the path of meditation. And then I was quite interested because of the Beatles going to Maharishi, and that was really part of the, the stimulus of it. And then the physical yoga followed on. In fact, I have a dear friend whose sister had just started taking up yoga, and that would have been around about 1970, the physical side of yoga, and I discovered a, 
a school not far away with the Vijay Yogendra, who was the, the son of the very famous Sri Yogendra of Santa Cruz, Bombay, one of the longest standing yoga therapy centres in the world. Well, that was convenient. Very convenient, and it wasn't far away, it was in St Kilda. So that's where that journey started, and it just sort of expanded and grew over the years, you know, you're coming and going with varying levels of commitment intensity in the early days, but probably within a few years it was, I knew this was really going to be the direction of my life, and so by the mid to late 70s, it, that was the focus. And so always from the beginning, obviously, you came at it from a kind of healing yourself perspective. I think so. Um, as well as the experimentation. Well, there was the healing of the self, and, and in a, I was very lucky because early days, I really got that was, is what, what it was about, healing the small S self to bring it in alignment with the capital S self, if you like. And so... Also, because I had a background in, 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 in what you might call sports sciences and, and you know, I was involved with football teams and other teams and you know, involved as a football trainer and you know, doing massage and things like this. So um, there seemed to be this fit of yoga for the well-being of others. So for myself, it was usually predominantly more what we might loosely call the, 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 the spiritual unfoldment or awakening. And when I was helping others, it was probably more to do with their uh, physical well-being. And it was later on that I married those two and there was some alignment. So in a way, ironically, I was probably practicing yoga therapy almost from the word go. Yeah. Yeah. Especially coming from the lineage of your first teacher, like that mm. would have just always been part well, of your practice. Well, absolutely. Again, it was like that. And the following teachers were all from a therapy background, whether it be Swami Gitananda or A.G. Mohan, and on it goes, you know. So you've mentioned a couple. Are there any key teachers that you'd like to share with us or any maybe really special experiences you've had with key teachers? At this very, very moment, you. Oh, namaste. Because when we sit, and with my, because when you sit with somebody, they're your teacher. And, and I really believe that. And, you know, in early days, the belief was you take your teacher and you stay with that teacher, come hell or high water, doesn't matter if you get sore knees or sore ankles, or they physically abuse you or sexually abuse you or whatever. <laughs> you just you were yeah, told to stay with teacher. knows best. Exactly, exactly. Mm. teacher knows best. So whether I was had an element of renegade or not, I don't know. And I do hold an element of bhakti, you know, within my, I guess, my mindset. But but it was not jumping from flower to flower. When I've been with teachers, I've tried to dig a deep hole with them because you don't find the water by digging shallow holes you dig a deep well but I do believe you can have more than one deep well and so these varieties of teachers that have come all had some similar streams and it's probably not a coincidence that you know most of those were from the southern India from the Tamil Nadu you know with the, the, the Gitananda tradition and the, the variety of Krishnamachari influences coming through A.G. Mohan uh, you know, who influenced me quite considerably in the 90s and more recently through Richard Miller who I do want to acknowledge as probably my current teacher because I think we always maintain a teacher no matter how much we might be regarded as an elder by others we you know mentorship teach and, and, and continual studentship is important I think in yoga and meditation so Richard who I've known for a little over 10 years no, just on 10 years I met him 10 years ago and really took on IRS in my first workshop with him about eight years ago and sort of studied it more formally when he first came to Australia in 2013. Because his yoga background, of course, is comes from Desika Chah, whilst his 
if you like, his spiritual and self-nourishment, self-awakening tradition really comes from the Kashmir Shaivism. So in a way, I've taken on board quite a bit of that Kashmir Shaivism non-dual philosophy, which is interesting because in the 80s, and I know I'm jumping around a little, but it's it's like that in the life of yoga. You can't tell the mind to be linear. <laughs> you want to be a linear mind, really. In the early 80s, I was very drawn to Advaita Vedanta, so the, the non-dual teaching. So it was not a big jump to go from Advaita to Kashmir, Shaivism, which, would, which is another form of non-dualism, but a little, if you like, a little bit more open. It's what we call um, unqualified non-dualism, whereas um, Advaita is qualified. There's still um, something the Advaita says, neti neti, not this, not this. You know, we, whatever's going on, it doesn't really exist. It's all just your mind's projection. Whereas Kashmir Shaivism tradition that non-duality says, yes, this, this, and this, and this. So, it's, so it's not, not this, not this, no, not this, it's, it's, it's everything. All this, and, and, and all this is part of non-separation. So there is that same thing of non-dualism, there is, you know, which is possibly a little bit semantically different to oneness. But non-separation, it says, everything still is here. This, this actually exists, all these things. These are parts of life. But they are part of some other wholeness, some mystery. Would you like to explain how that flows into the I-Rest practice mm-hmm. in a practical sense? Sure. So with the I-Rest practice, and again, I-Rest sometimes misunderstood as just uh, another approach to yoga nidra. Yoga nidra is an important element within the IRS, but IRS is a complete path of meditation based on this idea of non-separation. And with non-separation, what we say is we welcome everything. We acknowledge our physical being, so we, we acknowledge what Samkhya has to teach us, the idea of the physical senses and our sense of perception and action and all the rest of the 25, 26 steps of, of Samkhya up to Purusha and Prakriti. We welcome those, and we welcome them as important messengers and parts of the component of how we live life within the real world. So it's a very real thing. It's not an escapism. But then we go beyond that, and we say, okay, behind that, what's really happening? And we ask ourselves these questions, well, if if I'm a being, and I'm not doing something, if I take away the biography of, of life for the moment, and just have this pure if you like, raw sense of being, what's the sense of space in being? Does that sense of space as pure being have a boundary, an outer boundary, or a centre, or is it just boundless, spacious? Then we ask the same sort of question about time, when we are just being. What is the sense of time? Or is is time sort of suspended when we're just being? Is it not so relevant it's, it's like it's a timelessness and as timelessness settles down thought settles down and when we're just being what's missing are we lacking anything or is there a sense of perfection and wholeness that we don't need to add anything we don't have to forget anything just to feel more as being and as being do we need to know more do we need to sort of is it something we need to get to learn how to be no it's familiar we, we, we can just be we don't know anything to be don't have to do anything just be. It's not dependent upon circumstance in, in being. Like I experienced this this morning doing a, a little physical practice and I do a bit of rolling because it helps with my potential vertigo at times. And the body's back and forth. And during that, I'm going back and forth. It's quite a vigorous thing. 
and I'm experiencing pure being. The being is just witnessing this movement that is here. So even with something going on, being is happening. So that's a foundational part of IRS, which then creates, if you like, a bridge between all that Samkhya stuff that we learn about in, in yoga to that next level of going into this sense of, uh, of non-separation. Uh, and then we start asking other questions about, well, what's, what is object and subject and how do they relate to each other? And can we just observe? Can we step back and dissolve away from being yet another subject when we're observing an object because otherwise we become another subject in order to be observed you know i am witnessing okay well i am witnessing that i'm witnessing i am witnessing the eye that's witnessing the eyes <laughs> witnessing and so you have this ultimate infinite regression if you like um in fact i'd probably say infinite progression to the extent where what happens is we deconstruct the sense of self limited self, where I, this, in this sense, you know, in Patanjali we know Asmita, you mm-hmm. know, one of the, the glaciers, we actually deconstruct this sense of Asmita and we experience thisness. And that I somehow just isn't there anymore. And yet we still see things, we're still in the world but not of the world and we are not, they don't have the hooks in us anymore. And, and so there's this lovely sense of just beingness as pure presence, awareing presence, undeniable presence. We, 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 we can't deny this is here. And everything is in, contained within it, allowed within it, welcomed within it. And yet, very quickly when we see that, the eye, the subtlest bit of eye is still there. Until such a stage that we really, and this is the ultimate in, in IRS, where we get to the highest level of, we go beyond the sense of I. And, and there is just beingness, we can come back to the eye because we need to function in the world. And that's another key thing with iris. It's not like, and some people think in meditation, you go and you're, oh, bliss, man, we just, you know, never cover samadhi or nirvana and we're up in the clouds. Well, that's not very functional. So we bring it back. This is called sahaj. We make it real. We bring it back into the world and we integrate now. And so we, even though we've, if we, like we've awoken to this, deconstructed aspect of ourselves, we then reconstruct components of self for functionality and then bring that awakening back so that at every moment, whatever we're doing, what we've done before, now is done with the background of, I know something else. I know, now know, how to tie the shoelaces, when to tie the shoelaces, and who is actually tying the shoelaces. And so it kind of brings to mind the Dhyana, Dhyana and Samadhi concepts. It's it's similar to that. And it goes a little further, I think. And because an iris starts very much, as all meditation does, with you you, you must learn how to focus the mind. And and attentional practice is great. So a lot of the early practices in iris, especially a 10-step protocol, elements of that are designed to fine-tune our attention skills to build the muscles of attention as Richard likes to say and then once we do that of course we reach that stage where we are in this flow of that attention which we might then we might call that the dharana and then this samadhi of course samadhi there's so many types of samadhi and levels and and and, you know um, know, with the seed without the seed and all the rest but so early days we are we certainly still have the seed of, of with our samadhi but ultimately we let go of that seed and so I think there is a great compatibility 
of the Nibirja or, or the Nibirkapa Samadhis um, are quite compatible with those higher levels of what we experience and we teach in, in this idea of Kashmir Shaivism. And I guess those earlier stages as well are somewhat of a safety mechanism so that when people get to those unlimited realms... So important. And that's that's what drew me so much to Iris, I think, was the fact that it had these clear safety mechanisms and, and you know, the, the idea of the inner resource that Richard is so keen on. And in fact, I don't think I've ever taught anybody Iris without initially having inner resource. In fact, I'm just about to have a, a CD or... It's, it, I don't know if it's available in CD. It'll be a, an E download yeah download yeah. a set of five iris recordings through the iris side in the states and i actually say at the beginning please listen to that first recording which is about the inner resource several times before you progress because what it does is it gives you this holding space and because iris is so you know, trauma sensitive and you know and a lot of people use it who've found themselves to be vulnerable hypervigilance and the various things that come with trauma that this I know, there's so many words that are inadequate and can be limiting. You know, safety net, I don't like the word much. You know, it's, it's, it's a sanctuary, but it's more than a sanctuary. It's, it's, there's something more active and holding about it. But each person makes it their own, and they, they build it. And not just a concept. It's not a mental construct. What we do is we make it or, or encourage it and, and, and develop it as a, an embodied felt sense. Because when all of a sudden the stuff's hitting the fan... It's very hard for you to bring to mind and keep that mind focus on, you know, the safe space or the whatever it is, you know. But if you embody it, you know, and you bring forward that deep felt sense of, of the inner resource, that sense of safe with yourself, sense of security, sense of ease, deep comfort, that sense of in your, in your deep, authentic ground of being. And people will have images and sounds and people or, or not. They may or may not have those things. I mean, like it's not prescriptive no, in that way. No, mine's very visual and, and the various components of visual will, will come to the fore more and less as, as necessary. And it will morph at different times. Sounds amazing. Yeah. And so, so you know, when it was coming up, and I had some, some very interesting emotions come up, obviously with the recent surgery, in a resor- you know, I was doing a meditation, I had to go straight in, welcome the resource, straight back in. as something was coming up, not as a stepping away from the emotions and the, and the thoughts, it was just a, just a little container that okay you can you can welcome these and and see what they've got as messengers but you've got your container here holding the safety and so since you mentioned it um would you mind telling us a little bit about your recent diagnosis and surgery Mm. maybe how your practice has changed Mm. around that or maybe how it hasn't yeah right well i suppose a bit of both so i was born with heart defects and again this is part of the reason that you know brought me to meditation and and other aspects of yoga in the first place. So, and I had open heart surgery in 1959. It was pretty early days for open heart surgery in, in kids. And and they left another issue and said, we, we, we may go back to that, it might self-heal, but it, it didn't. And in, in 1991, I had to have another one. Probably should have done, been done earlier. And I've since found out that it had it been done earlier, I may not have been having these same issues. Anyway, so I started having atrial arrhythmias. At first, they weren't sure whether they were atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter. Uh, and those who understand cardiology will, will probably know more than I, but the, 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 what I know about it from having discussed a lot with folks over the years and more recently, that more typically the fibrillation is likely to be in the left atrium and the flutter is more typically likely to be in the right atrium. Though that can overlap. Anyway, so it, I was having a lot of serious arrhythmias that put me in emergency ward twice in the last year uh, via ambulance. You know, really quite horrendous. You know, you think it, 
how's going to jump over his chest and you're breathless. And, oh, how terrifying. Yeah, it's, it's a little terrifying. Anyway, but inner resource was there all yeah, along. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, good test of the inner resource. Absolutely. <laughs> Anyway, and so the, they said, look, I think we you know, they gave me some medication, which is fairly typical stuff, a beta blocker and some anticoagulants, because that's important. Um, if the blood's not clearing from the atrium, you've got to make sure that you're not going to have clots. Because if you have a clot that starts moving out, it's going to cause damage. It's, yeah. <laughs> that's not a, if that's, a, that's going to. <laughs> so they said, now let's, let's go in and do this thing called an ablation. We don't know, though, what your type of everything is. We won't know until we go in. Mm-hmm. So they went in, they go in via the groin, then through the, uh, the inferior vena cava, via the femoral artery first, which of course, where it ends up in the heart is in the right place. It comes into the right atrium. <laughs> so they have a look around there with their little diagnostic uh, tools, which sense where the, where the signals, electrical signals are. And thank goodness, touching wood, um, it was a what they call a typical arrhythmia, which means it's one where they can ablate it with, with usually reasonable success without a lot of drama. They were concerned it might have been an atypical one, which would have been more challenging. Anyway, so that's, they've ablated it, which basically is they, they, they burn a couple of places, a little, couple of millimetres of the heart tissue, so the incorrect electrical signal can no longer go there. So it should default back into its normal signal from a thing from the atrial sinus in the atrium across to the AV node in the, between the ventricles. So, anyway, touch wood, that's feeling good now. But immediately after the surgery, there was such a sense of heart centre exposure, invasion, mm-hmm. trauma. Because even though they haven't sawn the chest open, it's <laughs> still inside my heart. Yeah, it's still and, really and, intrusive. And, and, mm-hmm. and doing some damage to the tissue. Mm-hmm. You know, helpful damage, but so it's... <laughs> okay, the whole body's not as traumatised as... <laughs> with the chest open like it's happened in the past but it's still major surgery for the heart but what I found was as much as the physical symptoms which they give you a note you're going to feel this and you're going to feel that and I felt all those things <laughs> for the approximately the same number of days that they suggest they're going to happen so I was very typical <laughs> in all that stuff it's just settled down the last couple of days and a few more weeks to go for full recovery but it was the sensitivity to this subtle incursion if you like into the heart and what the heart centre means and that surprised me, but in a way, ironically pleased me. Because, the, well, maybe I'm, after all these years of practice, I'm developing a sensitivity mm. to the subtle realms, <laughs> which is nice. Because of the, the time before, I, well, I probably was a little bit, it was more, there was so much physically going on, it was, I don't know if I was that sensitive. But anyway, so the meditations, coming back to that main question of how they evolved, was this great sense of, acceptance of the messages of the heart center, the physical sensations, because in IRS, as a meditation, we welcome whatever sensations are arising at the time. There are lots of physical sensations in the heart, and some are really uncomfortable, some are a little disconcerting, though the mind says, that's okay, the doctor says this will happen for a few days. But then behind that, letting myself settle back into being, and allowing from that place of being to observe what would be really challenging stuff, you know. I mean, I mean, this is core stuff when your heart is hurting, literally hurting, because mm-hmm. it's been burnt, for goodness sake, it's going to have some pain. Yeah, and it's yeah. not just the heart you're feeling, you're feeling surrounding tissues, yeah. the pericardium particularly, and, and you're getting pains to the body, which at any other time you'd say, go to the hospital, because that's like, could be heart attack pain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I know this is the post-surgical pain. And to really feel okay with it, and to feel okay that you don't like it, 
that it's a preference. And, and it's the beautiful thing about practices like ours, not just iris, all meditations that take this approach, that we recognize what is a preference and to say, okay, this is a preference, but I'm okay if that preference doesn't come about. And then to start watching the doubts. Okay, well, it's fine now, but I've read all the data and it's about an 85% longer term success rate. <laughs> I'm hoping I'm on that 85%, but worrying about it's not going to help. And just reflecting upon the fact, well, you know, you've got emotions about this. What do they say? The emotions say, I'm actually feeling at home. So coming back to this heart center meditation time and time again for the first week, holding the heart, crying with the heart, and just letting that, the acknowledgement, the acceptance that it was a messenger, that it has a message. And I think that has been the most powerful thing that more than any time before, I've really accepted the messages coming from the, the felt sense and emotional messengers that are here as part of life. Really, really listen to them more deeply than ever before. And that's such a testament to the practice. I, I think it's... it is. It's, it's a welcoming practice, you know, and yeah, so it's beautiful. I think I can, I can really empathise with that because I, I don't know if you know, I, I had stomach cancer yeah. and um, my stomach was removed. And mm. so it's not exactly heart surgery, but mm. the, that point at the centre of your chest is, is sort of now, in my case, I guess all tight. And I think there's a lot of emotion there as well. So, yeah, just getting the chance to observe that. And, yeah, um, thank you, Ali. And it's good. And yeah. it's the, the, so you, what particular approach to your meditative acceptance of all this i remember sort of early on in the piece i had this particularly sort of powerful experience i was lying in shavasana mm. and um, i think we'd done maybe a few say fish pose mm -hmm. so you know opening up the chest and i was just lying on on the floor in shavasana and i know i just sort of just sort of felt like everything almost opened up and just this energy was coming through i you know i don't know if i'm articulating this very well mm -hmm. but it, it just sort of made me realize that there's there's a lot of stuff going on there, like maybe even some shame and some, mm. you know, some sadness, obviously some sadness, some grief mm. at, at losing the stomach. So uh, I think I can mm. empathize a little bit at least mm. with what you're saying. So if we weren't in this podcast now, I'd be asking you questions like, <laughs> so as you're talking about this sense of shame, where do you actually feel that in your physical body? Because mm. this is what we do in Irish. So we, we engage people to say, well, okay, you've got a messenger here, but the mind can confuse the messenger. And, and try and the biography will, will start giving its different coloured glasses on to yeah, yeah. <laughs> make it feel better. Always. But the body, the physical sensations, are, you, can't, you can't fudge them. Mm. <laughs> they're, they're, they're real. Mm. Yeah. So we won't go into that because we're here to Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're between you. Yes, yeah. well, <laughs> well, I have to say, I felt this resonance with you and wanted to, yeah, yeah. my yeah. natural instinct was to sort of go and ask those <laughs> questions. <laughs> I know it was Ryan's experience as well that no matter how much meditation practice you have at home, once you're in the intensive care ward, it's such a challenging place to try Very and challenging. tap into mm. that. Yeah. It is. You know, I have to say, when because this wasn't a GA, I had the option of going GA. I said, we generally don't. I said, well, if they generally let's not do it but I was quite uh, doped up with midazolam which is a benzo and so when I first went in you know you go into the the, the, the it's actually not actually called an operating theatre it's a cath lab but it's you know it's the same thing all really stainless steel and lights and cameras and a huge great TV screen where they can observe what's going on and you're taken off the gurney onto this 
you know, they had those whole <laughs> metal, skinny little things, and you plonked on like a, a piece of something on the butcher's plate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the drips were in your arm, and the next thing, there's noise, and there's people coming and going and talking to each other, and all this accent. I said, is it always noisy in here? They said, yep. I said, this is what I, Cat Labs and Operating Theatres are like, it's just all action. You normally don't know about it because you're out by the time you get in normally. And, <laughs> And it can be quite... And so I was doing meditation at that stage, and I said, well, you go ahead, I'm just going to meditate. And, um, you know, because the Medoza Land probably... <laughs> Slightly <laughs> different flavour to the meditation. Different flavour to the meditation, that's <laughs> So this is a complete change of direction. Sure. <laughs> but would you like to tell us a little bit about the beginnings of Yoga Australia? Look, let, let me weave it something else you, you'd... Um, listeners will probably guess that you've sent me a few questions ahead of time that I might, might like to look at. And I read through a couple of them and I was thinking actually in the shower this morning, what might I say about this? And I thought, well, I've got to keep it brief because I could talk for three hours on this area. But in, in the late 90s, mid to late 90s, I was doing some graduate studies at Victoria University. And my minor research project was surveying yoga teachers to see whether they were comfortable with their level of professional experience, skill and training. That came about when I was presenting at a couple of medical conferences in the mid-90s, Mind, Immunity and Health, which was put on by Ian Gawler, the Gawler Foundation. And some of the doctors were saying to me, how do we really know what a qualified yoga teacher is? Like, what's... And we, we are concerned, we like yoga, but we're a bit concerned because we don't really enjoy a very good professional status. You know, we're a bit nervous about referring people because... A bit of a mixed bag. Exactly, a mixed bag. And, and that got me thinking. And I discussed this with A.G. Mohan to, to, at the same time he was thinking about standards of training and discussing with me. And so we had this two-way conversation. And then, so I decided to do this survey. And it came back that a lot of teachers thought they would be interested in, in upskilling. They like the idea of having a qualification that would be better regarded than what they've had, no matter... And there was a range of teachers. There was 130 respondents, teachers from across all traditions, including Yingo, you know, with with his really deep, strong training. Anyway, so I thought, that's interesting. And I started designing the course at CAE, uh, or for CAE, based around loosely some of the principles of, of the Krishnamacharya tradition, plus my own experiences. And I thought, well, I want to build this into a standard that it's going to be really worthwhile. So I did some research and discovered that one can accredit a training program under uh, what was then called the State Training Board. Uh, it's now Skills Australia, I think they call them. And it's, you know, the, the, basically, the, the national bodies that accredit training of various sorts. So people often know it as vocational educational training. So I looked at what was required of that and divided the course. It was, as you know, two years at an advanced diploma level. Uh, it was eventually accredited. At the time it was going on, and I was discussing with a lot of friends and colleagues, some people were starting to talk out in the field saying, he's developing this course, it's, it's an 8 to 100 hour program for goodness sake or more, and you know, we've been taught teacher training, we don't even know how many hours, I mean, it might be two, three hundred hours, we're lucky, and this is a two year diploma, like we three months of training, or you know, we sat with our teacher for a year in apprenticeship, what's it mean, are we all going to feel a little inadequate now? Some people got angry, I had to stand up in front of some meetings saying, this is not the government taking over. Yoga. This is an attempt to improve the professional status of yoga teachers because we're hearing from our colleagues in the field of physiotherapy, medicine, psychology, that they would like us to up our game so they can have more confidence in what we're doing. Anyway, so it was a bit like the wagons being circled. (laughs) 
So a range of yoga teachers came together and I was in the first group to support them with it. And a lot of them came from the Gita School of Yoga who were, were very interested in, in, in all of this because they you know, like to see what's going on. And they tended to, because their training's a little different to other trainings, they wanted to make sure they were part of the, the solutions you know, that were going on. And so yoga, the Yoga Teachers Association was formed. 25 odd teachers came together in a meeting in South Yarra and we all decided to start an association. In fact, my membership number is five. Nice. <laughs> the executive, executive committee were members one to four and after the first six months I was on a committee for a short time to help develop their training standards which if you like bowed something from our training program because it was seemed to be like a logical place to start and then other things were tweaked from it we actually bowed a few things ironically from Yoga Alliance Gyandev Rich McCord was very helpful and, and gave some ideas so we developed that standard which was 300 hours shortly after we requested it 350 hours Yoga Teachers Association of Australia a few years later turned its name to Yoga Australia on an advice I gave to Steve Penman suggesting we should do that because there was Fitness Australia it was a much better name to be the, the hub for all things in yoga which it's starting to become now more. and of course Meditation Australia followed the whole <laughs> idea <laughs> that was, Stephen's involved with Stephen's well. involved again now because he's taken those same ideas and of course Meditation Australia and Yoga Australia really are you know, sharing so much of stuff together which makes a whole lot of sense. So that's really how Yoga Australia started and in early days a lot of the teachers who didn't have an alumni, their own association appears from their own uh, training, were very interested in joining as you know the of course at CA, the, you know, the younger had their own guild, it had their own guild, you know, IYTA had its own thing. So a lot of teachers had their own association so at first it was the the non-aligned teachers but more and more those who had a, a strong lineage also came on board to the extent now I was surprised I was in the office at Yoga Australia about three or four weeks ago taking in about half my yoga library I've given to them as a donation because they're trying to set up this free bowling library for, oh, for young teachers and I was trying to sort of lighten my load about how many books I went, no just share them out like you can sit on these things forever you know car load of these things and I said to Sona, how many people now are really, I mean, she said, their mailing list is 9,000. Wow. Now, when I was president, our mailing list was 2,500, and that's only three years ago. <laughs> so what happened is we opened this thing to the, uh, like the non-teaching members who, you know, obviously don't get registered, but they have this, ex- get all the knowledge and, and it's just fantastic. And, uh, and of course, with the yoga therapy registration now, which is sensational, I found out only yesterday, just by coincidence, that there's well over 100 registered yoga therapy yoga therapists with Yoga Australia now, which is almost double what the older association, the AAYT, has. And you know, I'm not sure whether AAYT will continue on, but um, there seems to be a rule among some people too. But I think, you know, longer term, Yoga Australia will be where that action is as well. So well, whether cool. it would be another stream in that. But, but we, well, Yoga Australia River. Well, we, basically. And Yoga Australia has a such strong connection with International Association of Yoga Therapists and with this, uh, some other international groups in yoga, one called the Global Networking Initiative. And as you're possibly aware, Leanne Davis, the current president of Yoga Australia, she's taken over my role on the certification committee in the IAYT. I stepped down from nine years of committee work with them in October. So we have Australian representation and one of... Yoga Australia's other council advisor, Janet Lowndes, is now also on a committee international association of yoga therapists, seeing how standards for people who are licensed healthcare practitioners and practicing yoga therapy may vary a little different from the people who are certified yoga therapists from a yoga background. So all this 
is to this common aim of improving the professional status and standing of yoga, yoga therapy and everything to do with this. And they also advocate for yoga teachers' workplace rights. Absolutely. So important, yeah. Really. So I'm just thrilled, that, you know, the, the little bit of influence I've had with Yoga Australia, I'm just thrilled where they're going. Their management is strong, the committee is strong, the staff are sensational, really go-ahead uh, organisation. And as you, you know, would have read many times, it's in the process of becoming recognised by the federal government as a peak body. Now, they don't hand them out very quickly. It takes about five years of hoops, <laughs> a fire to go through to get this status but they're well on their way and it's looking like it might be too far away and that basically means that they have the status that's almost like a like a real certifying licensing body uh, really a deep imprimatur of, of, of an organization and you can just tell like when you look at their website they've got you can tell it's run by yoga teachers. Mm-hmm. Like their code of ethics is really beautiful and mm-hmm. very much in tune with yoga yes. philosophy. Yeah. And even though it's a little bit about officializing yes. or... Yeah, it's right. You need to see those things. Yeah. When you email them, like you're dealing with a beautiful, real person Absolutely. who has your best interests at heart and is kind of there to help you and, as and, a yoga and, teacher. And they're behaving with the spirit of yoga at all times. You know, even if you're in the scope of practice, it looks a little bit sort of cold and clinical, but that's to help other people who aren't yogis understand what does a yoga teacher do and what don't they do. Mm. And, and my hope is that more yoga teachers will read that scope of practice back and forth and really understand it. I mean, it's the scope of practice that Yoga Australia has is almost the same as the one that the International Association of Yoga Therapists have, just with the, the necessary changes of international body, local body, one's therapy, one's teaching. But in essence, they're you know, the same concept and the same framework because when we're teaching yoga, if we understand our scope of practice, we can't help but behave professionally and we can't help but stay within our code of professional conduct and behave ethically and really demonstrate in our actions, words of course, the deep and genuine care for the people that we're serving. Because as yoga teachers, we are serving. Now, we may well earn an income from it, but we are still serving people. They're very, um, there's a CDP, which mm-hmm. is your continued professional development, and they're very open on the kinds of things you can yes. do for that as well, yes. and quite trusting. Yes. If you're preparing for a workshop, you can even include your research time as part of your professional Absolutely. development. And yes, well, and the trust is there, but of course there is audits available. I spent two years doing the audits of those. And I think we selected the, some, we got some advice from someone who understands sampling, and we had to sample 6% to make it a valid sample. So there were several hundred teachers, and several people didn't have stuff, and we couldn't accept them. And we, and we had to, so I think about a dozen people were asked to better go out and do some stuff because mm-hmm. it's just... Go get some it. certificates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, we are serious about it. And I say we, you know, as, as, a, as a field, and Yoga Australia particularly, it's not just pretend. And, and Yoga Australia is about to start site visits of training providers, <laughs> not just escorters. This will be the first model in the world doing it. I think that's a lot of people's criticism of Yoga Alliance. Like, yeah. all, like you just pay them your money Take and your money get their and, go, and there's it. no verification. It doesn't mean anything right. except that you paid the fee. Exactly. Well, they're trying to change their ways. I hear, I had a short meeting with one of their folks recently who just wanted to ask some questions about scopes of practice and things. And, and Leanne's now going to be in regular dialogue with them. 
and it seems like they are wanting to be a slightly better citizen in the field of yoga. I mean, they're big. Now, they're people with 90,000 members worldwide. You know, it's, it's a big organisation, so it's, it takes a little while to turn the, you know, a big tanker around. Mm-hmm. But uh, I do get a sense there is an intention for that to happen. It's an interesting space as well because often yoga teachers, while they have great personal ethics... Mm-hmm haven't chosen this path because they like following rules and filling out forms and mm-hmm. having someone else tell them mm-hmm. what they can be Absolutely. doing. So. Which, which can be a challenge, of course. And and as you know, there's a, a lot of folks out there now running workshops and providing wonderful add-on skills for yoga teachers in this area, the business skills. You know, there's the Brooke McCarthy's and the Claire Netley's of the world who are doing this wonderful work. And it's so important. And people doing the work on how to understand your ethical guidelines, your boundaries, and, and, and you know, when you're working with mental health, you know, yoga for many, many years had quite a good credential in dealing with people in the physical area, and, and massage therapists and physios were reasonably comfortable, but mental health? Well, what did people, what did yoga folks know about mental health? Sure, yoga is a, is a form of psychology, and this yoga switches is all about psychology, but did they really understand? So now we have all these courses on yeah, yoga for mental health, yeah, with Janet Lowndes and Michael Domenico and it's just the stuff that's on offer now is so exciting for folks who are new to yoga and of course so much can be done online. Yeah, yeah. Would you like to talk a little bit about that evolution of how mm. like yoga learning you either went in person or yes. you had a book to read yeah. and then it's evolved to videos and DVDs and internet yes. and online streaming and also I guess the more frivolous side of that, which is Instagram and mm. YouTube. And, yeah. yeah, that's right. Facebook clips of goat yoga and beer. Yeah, yeah. Right. And thank goodness for JP Sears who keeps it keeps it light for us. Yeah. <laughs> so I was one of those folks who, you know, going back fifty odd years in this field, did the whole idea of anything but in face training was anathema. And even to the early days when the IYTA was running what was essentially their what used to be called correspondence courses and you still had to go face to face for a week or two whatever and I was a bit iffy about it even though the course was a good course I mean they run a very good course but over the years things have evolved they've changed and I've softened a lot to the extent where I think I'm quite enthusiastic about the new medium uh, the new media as long as we understand the difference between synchronous and asynchronous electronic learning Synchronous meaning you are live and you can contribute. There is a dialogue, there's an interaction between the teacher and the students, and you're hearing the other students as well. That's that's great because now you're on an online classroom, and yes, there might be a little bit of resonance missing by not being face to face. But is that better than people not getting the training? To me, it's damn sight better than being sent a book to read and a workbook or a DVD to watch and then fill out the workbook and getting it marked. That's that's pretty shallow. <laughs> distance learning. Synchronous learning can be supported by asynchronous learning, which is, yes, look at this DVD and, and then fill out a workbook. That's got to be supportive. And so when people design online training now, you know, they, they're clear. This many hours and these certain competencies must be covered synchronous. And if it's asynchronous, we used to be called non-contact, is, is supportive. And that's a certain number of hours it can. So if you look at, for example, the Yoga Australia Yoga Therapy Standards, it clearly shows this many hours we want to have full contact, of which a certain amount can be synchronous online training, and only a certain number can be asynchronous. 
And it'd be so much harder to wrap your head around some of these concepts without being able to ask questions and hear other people's interpretations. Yes. Like, it'd just be such a hard slog. Yes. And you can't make it your own and make it real when if it's not synchronous. And what ends up happening with trainings, which the old style correspondence, is you end up with clones. Because people have had to give the same answer in the workbook. <laughs> and so therefore they think that this is the only one approach. And the thing they're feeling about what they've experienced may not be right. And so they go with the you know, what the book says. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and you end up with people who are clones rather than bringing forward what their experiences are and what yoga is to them. You don't realise that there's as many right answers as there are people in the group yes, sometimes. Yes. And fortunately, even the face-to-face trainings, the older style ones where it was, the teacher stands up and says, this is the way. And so everyone came out with exactly the same thing. And I mean, still people still do it, learn the same 26 postures in the same script. And not that I'm naming any particular brands, of course. Um, <laughs> um, but, and, and I'm sure there's strengths in all those. But where is the personality? Where is the individual person bringing their felt experience of yoga in their life and sharing it with their students? Because that's ultimately how the great teachers taught. How did a Yenga teach? How did Sachinanda teach? How did Sachinanda teach? How did Ma teach? Their yoga in their life. Here's how I experience it. And that's why Yenga's teaching is different to Patabi Joyce's, is different to Jessica Charles, or they've got the same teacher, right? the same teacher, because they made it real into their own life. And this really circles us back to the CAE course, mm. which, to my knowledge, is pretty unusual in having teachers from different disciplines and different or different lineages. Yes, yeah, so it was the first one to really do that. And I think the RYTA course probably was like that. You call it eclectic. But the CAE was consciously, we did that on purpose to say, let's give people the richness of flavours. The underlying weave of the course was there. In fact, we actually had a document. What was the, the, the mission and the weave of this course, which hung around the principles from Krishnamacharya as taught by Mohan, didn't but all these other things that wove into it from the tantric tradition and, and Selvaji Sudian's tradition and, and, and Donna Fahey's and, and Judith Lasseter's and Satyananda, Satyananda, all this stuff wove into it for the different teachers. And it's even great. when I was a student in the course, it was always part of what we learnt. Mm. Like a teacher might be teaching you a certain asana and they might say, I will instruct it this way, but this yep. other teacher, teacher will have this other point of view. <coughs> yes. And so from the beginning, the emphasis was on us to yeah. find our own truth and to also teach in a way that mm. allows students to find their own Absolutely. truth in the practice. As you have done. <laughs> <laughs> and that's right. And because it's your own voice, your own truth, your own, your own yoga. And my dream would be... If there's, let's say, we estimate there's between fifteen and 20,000 yoga teachers in Australia, I'd love to see 15 to 20,000 styles of yoga. If we had to use the word styles, I mean, I don't like the word, because yoga's yoga. But really, that's it, that's what it ought to be. Uh, now, some people will see that as, as, as heresy. You know, I mean, some, particularly some of the Indian traditions, it's, this is the way, and it's, it's, a, it's a different approach to things, that, you know, you're taught this way, and this is exactly the language you use and everyone gets this thing the same way and look a lot of good's been done for lots of people that way but it doesn't seem to work that well in the west it was one of the things that drew me to Mm. the course Mm. the fact that it was a real diversity of Mm. styles and approaches yes do you think that it's possible to take that too far and to kind of let your own ego maybe take over a little bit in trying to make it yours well yes there's a potential for that and that comes back to two things 
maybe more than two things, but let's two came to my mind immediately. <laughs> One is the maturity of the student coming to do teacher training. If someone's a neophyte in yoga generally, I mean, I like the idea that someone's had five or ten years of personal practice in yoga before becoming a teacher. Then there's less likelihood of that. The second is the quality of the structure of the course and the people teaching the course. Now, for example, the course that used to be the CAE, as you know, now run from what was called the Academy of Yoga Learning now as of a week ago. So this is this will be the first time this will be heard online. They changed their name to Academy of Yoga and Mind Body Education. Nice name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and so run by Kay, of course, and uh, others have come on board with her to um, to run that. And the faculty that she has around her for the training that she's running is exactly like that. They understand scope and know what you can and can't do. And yes, we want you to explore, but remember. If this is pranayam, there are still some guidelines in pranayam. And if this is asana, yes, we want you to take an approach that's a bit individualized, etc. But where does asana stop becoming asana and just becoming mindless exercise? Mm-hmm. When does the philosophy become more a generalized life philosophy? And when is it? When can you no longer say it's a yoga philosophy? That's a, that's a, that's a greyer one. <laughs> I would argue with myself many times on all sides of that argument. <laughs> oh, non-dual here. <laughs> non-dual, exactly. No, there's, there's only one side to it. Um, but yes, yeah, so I think there is a safety in, in having a reputable organisation with, with really good quality staff and that the person is matured enough when they come to teacher training. It's, it's not the necessary step. I've done yoga for two years, I think I want to become a teacher. It is not the necessary step. Some people will absolutely be ready for that and just fall right into it. Just like it's not a necessary step that I've been a yoga teacher for five years, I should be a teacher trainer now. That doesn't happen. I didn't become a teacher trainer until I'd been practicing for 30-something years. And what really helped me with that process is the fact that the course went for two years. Mm. Was that a conscious choice or was that just how long it took to put in all of the things that you wanted to put in? Both. See, here's the Kashmir Shavism. Yes and yes. <laughs> because we, when we looked at the, the, the course and the first, first iteration was a diploma and then became an advanced diploma because when it was re-accredited... The state training board said, no, this is, this is stronger than a diploma. It should be advanced diploma. They've changed their thinking now. They've swung it all the way back. And and so two years was... Diplomas could be one or two years. So we were encouraged one or two years. But I thought, no, time to mature into this. Lots of time for practice. We wanted people not just to come and cram. And so that even if people came along and they didn't have quite enough maturity of their practice, this would help develop the maturity. And you know yourself, the amount of practicing and journaling and, you know, even in summer break, all the plenty of had to do it. <laughs> so, yeah. I wasn't very excited about that. Yeah. Yeah. Summer break. <laughs> so, yeah, there was always something going on. And that was the primary reason, that, that the time to mature and for it to be an achievable thing for people so that it wasn't just too intense at the time. Yeah, my course was um, just one year and I think yes. I needed all of that to integrate yes. everything that I got. And I, and I didn't even feel like up until the second half of it that I was really yes. sort of Clicking. getting anything. And you had a yoga teacher at home <laughs> exactly. to ask all I the could, questions I could talk to. about it every yes. night. So. And did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you understand this idea that it, it takes some time to... to mature. And it is... Nowadays, most people aren't... A lot of people aren't going to commit themselves to two years very often so what's now happening with with Kay with the new course it's one year and then you get that qualification which gets you to your level one yoga Australia and then the next year there's your, so your next level and, and so you give people this option to add on you can come out finish it one year which is what I best does you have your level one 
stop if you want to, but you're still really only partway there. Level two, great. Now go on and become certified if you want to really be... I think it's a really good approach. Yeah. How have you noticed the yoga teacher training and even just the yoga teaching landscape evolve through the time that you've been teaching and living in Melbourne? Mm. I've seen two things occur. One is, in certain areas, a great deepening and professionalising of, of the trainings so that the professional status and standing of yoga teachers is, is growing. Then I've also seen almost the opposite occurring where it's, it's like the, the, you know, the hot dog stall of, of, of yoga training you know, on the side street. And there's a small number of courses, obviously the course that I ran and Kay now subsequently runs, that you know, is, is in that field of the depth and high professional acceptance, IYTA courses like that, the yoga courses. I mean, some of these really deep, going right down deep courses, there are some that sit in the sort of halfway between you know, the, the, the Academy of... Uh, um, Australian Academy of Yoga, those, those sorts of courses, you know, the one-year courses that are a little eclectic and, and, and they sort of, hmm, a bit of depth, perhaps not quite enough, but, you know, but there's, you know, that's... Maybe sort of, more of an emphasis on the individual... Yeah, yeah, so there are those that sit in the middle, but then there's the, the larger number of the ones that are the, literally, go off to Bali for three weeks and do the course and come back. Yeah. And they're the ones at Yoga Australia says, look, we, we can't really call these folks yoga teachers because they don't meet their minimum standards. We call them provisional teachers... And within three years, if they can get their extra 150 hours and show they've been mentored during that time, then they can get their full membership. And so, and there's a lot of those around. Some uh, give a surprising amount of good training for the short amount of time. I won't mention too many brands, but the very, very, very big one that's up in at a very nice place in North New South Wales. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. Often not because it's they run them so. But some of that training, I've dealt with people who have you know, done that training and I've seen them as clients and had them in sessions, and they actually learn a remarkably good amount of time. So it's well-designed program. And you get others, you think, oh, are you serious? What are they learning? And they, and they come to do something with this, and, and like they've come to see me for private uh, sessions or come to Iris, and you talk about some basic stuff, and they, they never heard of it. And they've done a supposedly full-teacher training program. They're not taught the yoga sutras. They're told there's a yoga sutras, here's one I recommend, read it in your own time. We've got no time to teach you. How many are you going to do it? Who's guiding through the text? It's not a reading text, like, as you know. Who can you ask <laughs> if none of it's making sense? Precisely. So, because of all of that, I have a very strong belief in, I don't know that I'll stop believing in this, and I will very quietly and keep encouraging that teachers should be mentored. I've uh, Yoga Australia, I think, will eventually get around to it, but they're open to the concept that you know, there is an established set of mentors listed, and you, people can say, okay, I'll select this mentor. Okay, they'll Skype with us once a month. and I'm supervising five people at the moment for their Irish certification. I mentor a couple of others. We come together on Skype, and, and, and I'm mentored. <laughs> so, so I'm mentored by a couple of folks in the state as, as needed, and, of course, my dear friend and colleague, Fuco, is still my mentor here in, in Australia. He's more senior than I in IRS. And, and if I want mentoring in something in yoga, I've got so many peers and colleagues that, yeah, we sit at a, it's not a hierarchy, but we've all been around for a long time. We can chat about things. And also, <laughs> and help each other. those conversations are awesome. Yes. Like, this is really interesting stuff to talk mm. about and still continuing that process of making sense of these things in your own mind or maybe 
going through a situation that happened in class that you weren't sure how you handled it, to be able to unpack that yeah. with other yeah. yoga teachers, even yeah. if it's people who have had a similar amount of training yeah. and experience to you, is so valuable. Absolutely. It's, it's such a solo it's occupation right. when you're teaching. You're right, Joe, and that's the whole thing where we're out there individually sitting in a room and we're being the one that's the teacher's men and know all the answers. And suddenly think, oh, my God. How many times have you felt like a fraud being a teacher? Oh, yeah, and I Me just... Me too, I have, and I still still would. <laughs> it's like you think, serious, I'm meant to know all that stuff. You know? <laughs> or even when people will put, like, it was a beautiful compliment, but they'll mm. say something like, oh, those two sessions with you healed my back. It's like, I just don't actually think that's possible. It's really great that you're feeling so much better, but it's not me healing you. It's, you know, what you've done it's for our, yourself. It's practice. All we're doing is we're, we're the guide by the side, as I like to say, and... Um, Look, you know, we, we, when we're teaching, whatever we're teaching, we always feel humbled and that, you know, really, am I really in a position that can be guiding this person? Because ultimately, but but all we can do, and I, this is something I think, one of the greatest learnings from Bitcher, I mean, you know, anybody can teach, the, teach me the Irish protocol and I could have learned it. But having learned from Richard, from a guy who has such a remarkable ability with presence and with resonance, that's where he's awakened into. To bring out of myself that same idea of being able to resonate and sit with somebody just as an authentic human being with them. Authenticity. Just being there, whether it be face-to-face, Skype-to-Skype, whatever the environment is, and really connect and say, well, we are not separate. Let's just welcome whatever there is here in the room just now. And in any moment, we're all doing the best we can. And... It is both humbling and empowering that because you know you cannot go wrong because whatever you do, if you do it with that sense of authentic open-heartedness and, and, and genuine sense of the Brahma Viharas, you know, that, that Sutra 133, you know, this idea of friendliness, joy, compassion, all that. If that's really where you're coming from and you're sitting with somebody one-on-one or a class of 50 people, you cannot go wrong because you are being authentic. You're being true. You are now the rose in that rose bush, <laughs> just offering itself, and nobody can question that. And so that gets rid of this idea of am I a fraud? Uh, you know, or because I don't know that I've ever spoken to a teacher who said, I, you know, I don't know if I did anything with these people. I don't know if I should be doing this. Or and I've had te- my own teachers who have been teaching as long or longer than I have, who said the same thing to me. You know, I, I often wonder whether I could be teaching what my teacher taught me. You know? <laughs> what right have I got? We have the right because we are authentic human beings sitting here in resonance with other human beings, inviting them to their authenticity. And I think that's it when it's you sharing your own practice and encouraging people mm. to feel into themselves. Mm then that's true. Mm. When it's you trying to tell people that you know everything and they're doing things the wrong way because yeah. that's not how it looks in the book, yeah. that's when we really get into murky waters. And See, I'm, I'm fortunate like you. You, you, know, you live with the yogis, and, and so do I, even though she's recently retired. But Heather is one of those remarkable yoga teachers that so often she'd come home from class and she'd say, you know what, I just didn't know what to do. I said, how the class go? But ironically, it was wonderful, you know, <laughs> because, <laughs> because, and there's this honesty. And she'd say to folks in class, you know, just, just absolute honesty about what's going on for the day. And, and it always worked out because of that honesty. I've actually found that some of my 
classes that I really felt haven't hit the mark are the ones that I've been the most prepared for. The ones where I'm like, oh, I'll play this music and I'll do this sequence. And I've been really excited about it. It just hasn't quite had no. that magic. Mm-hmm. It's true. You can over plan and think it through too much. And this is, uh, this is a great lesson for new teachers. Don't overthink it. And, and that you trust, and for all teachers who are listening to this, that you trust what you have behind you, that it will come forward if you get out of the way. <laughs> get, get some of your biography out of the way and allow the truth of that to come through. And, and with the simplicity and not trying to make things complex. Oh, yeah, we often say, as you would have heard us say in the course, you know, less is more most mm. of the time in, in, in teaching any form of yoga meditation. And um, we don't have to impress anybody with putting more stuff in there. I think as well, sometimes as a teacher, you kind of worry about people getting bored in your class. Mm. So, oh, I've got to like think up some new sequences and some new things. Mm. But I actually don't remember ever feeling bored in a yoga class myself. So I think it maybe comes from maybe a little bit of insecurity as a teacher that you have enough to offer without trying to fancy it up. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that sort of raises the question and I... Vaguely recall those might be on your list of questions, something along that line of practice evolving and all that sort of stuff, and you sort of touched on it a bit before, but to me, if it is truly yoga, it must evolve every session. Evolve doesn't mean better, stronger, longer, it's not a, it's not a hierarchical or directional thing, that there is, that you come to each session with a sense of newness and openness and not knowing. Because we come in singing, yesterday when I did that posture, I remember I had to turn that foot a little bit this way, or when I sat and, and you know, I got a sore nostril pushing one side too hard. Or, like, <laughs> forget all that. That was yesterday. <laughs> and if we're just being, what's time? <laughs> and, and that is really encouraging, because then what happens is you have a practice which might really fit for you. And the practice I have at the moment, my personal morning physical practice, what we might call my asana practice, it was given to me by a dear friend and colleague who had about the same length of experience as I had, but I saw him in some respects as a senior colleague because he'd published a beautiful, beautiful book and, and just so well loved overseas. And he gave it to me in 2008 or nine in the United States. And I still do that same practice with slight variations at times as the body fit, but I come in with its open mind each time. And so it is really fresh every day. And occasionally little things might weave in and out of it, but the central framework of it is exactly the same. That's Mukunda Stiles was the teacher, by the way, who passed away a few years ago. I think as a teacher as well, especially if you teach slightly different every class, it can be very freeing to Mm. have a bit of a framework for your own practice. So you can just shut off your creative inventing brain and like things will still go differently, like you're saying. And often you do, that is when the inspiration actually comes when you're not trying to force anything. Yes. Well, a lot of teachers, particularly Indian teachers would say that if you don't have a regular personal practice that is as its structure, how do you know what's going on for you? It becomes your, your starting point, your basis. It's your, it's your control <laughs> in, your, in your personal study on yourself. Otherwise, it's like weighing yourself once a week and having a different set of scales each time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone as well has probably... They've got like a little niggle or a little tight spot or a tight yeah. side of their body. You've got your poses, which are your like little check-in poses to Absolutely. see how things are feeling that day. Yeah. So, so that's a regular personal practice. That doesn't mean you then can't go and do other things. So there'll be days when I'll get on that ball and roll around 
I'll get in that, that vibrating machine and do stuff on that. Or I'll just do something outside, you know, and, and as a way of just another exploration. And, you know, when you look at the, the master of, of personal workshopping and exploration in Donna Fahey, that's why she is such a... has really almost created her own style in a way. She doesn't like that term, but it's, it's almost... That. <laughs> Seems like the great teachers don't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And because she spent hours getting on the floor and, and just she talks about rolling around and exploring things and workshopping things and so that is still valuable and I, I love to do that but the little 15 minutes of my little practice each day is the little touchstone often it's the jumping off point as well so yes. you're like okay whole body warmed up exactly like moving to something yeah. else yeah oh I felt something on that side hmm now let's think about this what could I think of you know or I went to this workshop last time and I discovered something different I mean, there's a workshop in Montreal in March th- this year. Discovered something beautiful in my... F- I love, love line twists. I mean, Jatar Pravriti and all its combinations, if you had to pick a favourite posture, that probably would be mine. And I just learned some other little magic thing that I just thought was sensational. Now, I've been caught by that. I talked to some people on a retreat this year. And I thought, wow, this is another little, just this little insight. You know, <laughs> you're always going to learn something... Everywhere you go. Yeah, the same pose and just that slightly different emphasis. It's on something, that's right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes it's counterintuitive to <laughs> think, really? That's on that breath, not the other breath? Mm. Wow, that all works. <laughs> well, also that's that moment where you're like, oh, I was just doing it this way because this is how I've been taught and mm-hmm. I've been told not to do it that way. Yeah. But actually when I do, it opens up this whole different mm-hmm. realm. Yes, exactly. Well, that brings up the other thing in, in yoga and say, well, why are we doing the posture? That's the question Mohan always asks. Why are we doing it? What's it for? People say, oh, well, I'm doing so. How do you do so-and-so? Okay, why are you doing so-and-so? Oh, well, shouldn't, shouldn't it be part of every yoga class? Yeah, shouldn't we always have a warrior two in our yoga class? I don't know. What's the purpose? What's the goal of the class? What's your personal goal for your practice? Like, <laughs> if you have this assumption, you have to do something. Like... Mm. I think that can be really helpful for people, especially if you have a personal dislike or mm-hmm. struggle with a pose mm-hmm. to just have that understanding of like oh here's all these other benefits that don't actually have to do mm-hmm. with how far I can reach my arm or you know how well I can balance on that leg because mm. that means you can get the benefit of that pose yes. at that moment it's not something you have to work towards and be better at yes. well one of the the adages that mine and, and Descartes both used is do the least in order to achieve what you need to achieve for example, I like to invert. Now, full, absolutely straight body, straight back, straight leg, shoulder stand, doesn't do me much good anymore. A little niggle in the neck, a little bit of arthritis in the neck, that level of inversion, maybe not so great with the cardiovascular system, don't know. But a really soft half shoulder stand just connects for me. And I think to myself, well, is there any benefit that I was looking for, which is the inversion, the versiculation, the, the work on the baroreceptors in the neck, uh, reversing up and a prana, values, hold, they're the things I was looking for. Absolutely no different. Full shoulder stand offers me nothing there. I don't do chicken asana anymore. It does nothing that I can't get with postures that are much more kind in my body, polite. And I think this is another key to practice we need to be kind and polite and it's a certainly a feature in iris when because you know iris has its well may not know has its thing called body sensing which is like movement it's a, it looks a bit like asana but it's actually more of a movement that comes from an interoceptive sense of, of of the body's energy and then the movement may 
unfold out of that and it's very polite very kind so really us you know hints are starting at home starting their own practice and i think a lot of teachers sometimes miss that do you think Uh, it's a little bit of a symptom maybe in teachers and in students and just as a society of a a lack of self-love and self-acceptance to feel like we always do have to push ourselves and do that bit more and we're not quite worthy i don't know if worthy is the right word but that striving and that goal-driven Probably approach. Probably only, only about 98.5% of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, striving and, and having to prove it to ourselves more often than not um, or to some imaginary Because hmm, most teachers are very nurturing and tell you that you're enough and exactly. not to push and yes. not to hurt yourself. <laughs> and then go home and watch how they do it at their shoelaces. <laughs> yeah, because that's, that's the the measure of a person's practice. Have they really learned how to do the shoelaces, when to do it the shoelaces, and who's actually doing them up? What does it say about me that I'm too lazy for laces and all my shoes are slip-ons? <laughs> <laughs> but then it might well be that you've, you've asked the question, why, why shoelaces? Yeah, I have to take my shoes off four or five times a day, forget laces. <laughs> I'm going to be very careful tying my shoelaces up. <laughs> yeah, as you know, that's, that's a metaphor for any number of things in, in, in life. In fact, the Jessica Chow was famously asked on many occasions, how do you really judge the, the benefit of a person's practice? And he says, look at their relationships. One of the things you're known for is your um, adrenal fatigue workshop. Would you like to talk about that and, and perhaps what's important about it? Mm, sure. <clears throat> well, what I discovered with you know, years of yoga therapy is that a vast number of people uh, have a deep fatigue and the medical profession a few years ago was starting to recognise adrenal fatigue as really a, a differentiated or diagnosable condition. So I developed this workshop based on one personal experiences and some ideas that preceded many, many years ago. Um, some came from all the way back to uh, Sri Yogendra, some quite a few from Swami Gitananda's approach and uh, just some overlays of my own experience. And the workshop essentially helps people understand this connection between their breath, their mind, and prana. So where the breath goes, the prana goes, the mind goes, where the breath goes, and the prana goes, and all that. So, and, and therefore, if the mind is being taken outward into an external locus of awareness, we're worried about this thing, worried about that person, and we have always past, future. The mind's out on holiday somewhere, stressing, Prana is going out. And so we are draining ourselves. So that's like the yoga physiology component, if you like, of, of that. Then correlating that then to you know, what's really happening in the, the HPA, the, the hypothalamic maturity adrenal axis and, and, and the production of, of adrenaline and cortisol, etc. What that does to the system and, and, and how it builds up and, and what happens if there's too much cortisol and you end up with the fatigue and cortisol eventually can't be produced and you collapse and and then so this set of practices so so simple and the idea is that they're very simply having movements with particular breath patterns where at times we retain the breath at times we suspend the breath and at times of retaining the breath we are consciously taking energy into the particular areas that the movement has facilitated to open up on the suspension of the breath we're taking the mind into that quietness so we're both energizing physically in the in the in the the pranic body and trying to reduce the hyperactivity of the mind. And there are some sound work with it as well and a variety of breathing practices. But the nice thing about it is 
The movements are really simple. They can be adapted and dumbed down to anybody's capacity. Back to doing the minimum. Exactly, back to the minimum. They can be done in a chair, and you know, this thing comes in sets of four just for convenience. Four rounds of this and four of that, and, and the breath cycles in counts of four, and but a person starts with one of each. And they can do two of each. Depends on the level of recovery from the exhaustion. And I was just thrilled by the number of people who found benefit from this over the years. And now um, Gina McCauley from Yoga Har and Bendigo is now uh, one of the, the main people starting to carry this forward and, and teaching others. And uh, a few people are starting to, to teach it now, which I'm thrilled about. That's uh, really exciting when people take something and just say, oh, we've not just done a workshop, we think this is good to pass on to others. So that's been great. Yeah, lovely. Yeah. And what a needed contribution. So, so needed, yeah. I mean, it's... I don't know how many people have done it, but it's even if just a few hundred, it's nice that those people have been helped. I guess this a little bit flows into a question that I hear a lot. Mm. What is the difference between yoga practice and yoga therapy? So yoga therapy is taking all the yoga tools and you sit with somebody, generally one-on-one, can happen in a group, and they have an individual requirement and you delve down deeper into their individual requirement you work out what is behind their presenting, let's say, their signs and symptoms. You, with them, work out priorities for where they want to go. Then you arrange a set of tools. Now, that's called the Vyuha model. Heyam, Hetu, Hanam, Upayam. This actually comes from the Yoga Sutras as well. And so when you work in that model, that's yoga therapy. You need more training for it because you've got to learn how to evaluate and assess people. So you are assessing each person. Depending upon the yoga therapist's background, they might do pulses for Ayurvedic assessment. They may do a lot of biomechanical assessment. There might be questionnaires of various sorts. Some people just really look. Some people pick up the energy of people. So there's a range of, of ways of assessing, but we're assessing across the Panchamaya model, the, the five koshas. We are sometimes, instead of looking at dosha, uh, we may be looking at the, the state of their gunas. And that's in the subtle aspect and of course the physical aspects the psychological aspects there's so many overlays that can occur now the most people get that one-on-one yoga therapy but there are people who can do yoga therapy in groups and when i was involved with the international association of yoga therapists one of the things that we did on our committee was to specify what differentiates yoga therapy group sessions from just a yoga class, which might be just aiming at people with special needs, because you might have, you know, is, is yoga for pregnancy, yoga therapy? Well, if, if you did an individual assessment for each person, and they all had special needs, and you know, it's their, they're all coming along with some issues in their, in their pregnancy, well, and the, your individual assessment, and you reassess them at, at, at appropriate intervals, then you can call that a yoga therapy session. Or in a situation where they've been assessed by somebody else. So people will go to a clinic sometimes, the physio or the doctor or the psychologist assess somebody. So your level of assessment as yoga therapist is a little less with each individual. They've still had an assessment and they're being reassessed by a fellow practitioner. So that's how the yoga therapy group works. And that's clearly, um, that exact description can be found in the uh, scope of practice, both for Yoga Australia, uh, yoga therapist and IAYT. Great answer. Thank you. <laughs> Do you have any advice for teachers starting yes. out or mid-career or yeah. really anywhere through Absolutely. their journey? Absolutely. Keep going. <laughs> it might seem challenging at times, but keep going. Now, keep going doesn't necessarily mean do the same thing all the time. 
Keep going might mean I'm going to stop teaching asking classes for a while. It might mean I'm going to do something else for a while or I'm going to go off and do a further study or it may mean, I hope it means, go to the Yoga Australia Conference at least every year or two. March 16th or 18th in Melbourne 2018, for example. And connect with your peers. If you've got an alumni you've studied with, you've got a connection already. Work with them. And you may well have group mentoring or supervision, or you might have individual mentoring. I think mentoring is probably the greatest thing you can have, though. I think of all things, an individual mentor who will then advise you what they think may be helpful. I mean, I'm really blessed to have four or five teachers you know, who have been mentoring from, for many years now, and that's just the most beautiful relationship um, to have with folks. And because you know some of their journey and, and they can trust you, you can trust them. And of course, what happens is if I'm looking for someone to refer to, <laughs> you know. The, so there's a networking thing which occurs as well as the, the self-development. This idea of personal practice, yes, you've got to have personal practice, but it doesn't necessarily mean you get on the mat for 45 minutes doing an asana practice that you learned five years ago. It may well mean different things, but the key is that each day you get up thinking, what is my mission and purpose? What will give my life purpose, meaning and value today? And do you have any specific practices that have been really helpful for you that maybe you could share with a teacher? Because I know that, say, you've been in traffic, you're running late, you've got to go and teach your class, mm. you don't have time. Sure. Or... Okay, you know, you know the old saying about don't have time? Is one of those that means you should meditate more. <laughs> the guy goes, I'm very business, I'm busy businessman. He goes to the Roshi, he says, I haven't got half an hour to meditate. What can you give me? I haven't got time to meditate? Okay, you need to meditate for an hour. <laughs> half an hour. Um, so there's, there's any number of practices. This is the key. It, it, it's not even what is the practice. It's the fact that you have committed to it. You know, that whole, you know, the, be thankful of the red light. <laughs> you know, I came across this situation this morning and I caught myself getting annoyed by somebody coming into a traffic and then she's coming up the side street and there's traffic coming and she could have got around and it could have and I think oh, come on lady you can go there and I thought mm, oh, I've, got a, I've got 30 seconds here wow which breath is most which nostril is most dominant at this moment <laughs> but by the time I finished that, she'd already gone. I'm the next one who should have been going. <laughs> someone behind me saying, What's he doing? <laughs> there's, look, there's, a, there's a range of beautiful little mini practices that people can do. Whatever the tradition they come from, there will be some. Whether it be just that, you know, you're feeling yourself present, the feet on the floor, the backside on the chair, you know, those simple things we do when people come to sit down. Any of those can be useful. What we're doing is just saying, acknowledge the present. I mean, one of the lovely things about some of the publications that Richard Miller has, his PTSD book, Iris for, for um, PTSD, and his what's called the 6CD set, they have these little mini practices, everything from four minutes up to the 44 minutes, and these little snippets of short things that you can do. So, so valuable. So I think it's, it's good for a teacher to learn those little things. You can buy little packages of them or just make up your own stuff. Sometimes doing your own recordings can be useful. You know, you're really harassed and, and, and you're, you haven't got that wherewithal just to, to let the mind anchor into the present. If you've got a recording, maybe of yourself doing that little quick thing, that can be very helpful. 
buy it in your car or have it on your phone and all that sort of stuff. Really useful little tool just to, to make that little full stop at the end of, end of a sentence and a little space between the various paragraphs of your day. I think psychologically as well, there's something nice about your own voice encouraging you to do something. Like, it's yes. very intentional. It is. It's very intentional, very real. I was a f- completely taken back when I first did a few, because, you know, who, who doesn't hate their own voice on recordings? I mean, it's a universal thing. <laughs> but uh, I thought, oh, this is going to be horrible. And, and nobody settled into it okay. <laughs> and it makes you a better teacher and a better speaker yes. if you've noticed those vocal tics in yourself Absolutely. as you do your own recordings. You <laughs> We, we stop saying so at the beginning of every sentence then, don't we? <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a beautiful book recommendation. Have you got any other resources that you'd like yes. to share? There's a book by a guy called John Prendergast, P-R-E-N-D-E-R-G-A-S-T, called In Touch. And In Touch is a book on self-discovery. It is the non-dual teachings uh, John Prendergast, like Richard Miller, was a student of Dr. Jean Klein, uh, who was a Swiss, I think he was born, meditation teacher in the 70s and 80s and, and, and died in the 90s. He's, um, and there's access to him online, you can get some of his books online, and have got a few recordings on, on YouTube of his, but John was one of his students. So this book is a lovely compendium of self-reflections. There's lots of exercises through it of how to be in touch with all of this. Yeah, so it's, it's very much a book on non-separation, on welcoming. Um, so it's very compatible with IRS. In fact, Richard often quotes John's work. Uh, I think it's a lovely book. I can judge the books that are important to me by the number of little yellow stickers that are sticking out. This thing looks like a pom-pom. <laughs> things sticking out of it. There, there literally has to be over a hundred of things sticking out of these pages. Heather said to me only yesterday, I was showing the book to another teacher who was here, a friend. Said, Where are you marking all those pages to read the whole book again? I said, yeah, but sometimes there's a, that, I need that one little inspiration of that page <laughs> instantly. <laughs> well, you start out thinking, I'll just do a couple of key points, and then when you look back over it, you're like, oh, that's pretty much every page now. <laughs> well, it's a bit like that. I was doing a book review for it, and that's how it started, you know these little highlights for them. oh that's another gem you know <laughs> so I do encourage that in fact I, I think it's nice for yoga teachers and anybody aspiring on a path is to have something that they can read each day a little daily reading it could be a you know a, an audio book of some sort but but a daily reading is really really useful I have two or three books that are always open and there's just a little bit that I'll read each day and you know, it might be two or three pages, a little inspiration, could be the poetry, you know, even have a Rumi on hand or you know, a Khalil Gibran on hand, just these little things. Just Because what it does is it just creates a, a mindset of we are acknowledging the importance of these things in our life rather than I've got five minutes spare. I'll just go and check my Facebook again. Mm. <laughs> or my emails. Yeah. That I've got five minutes spare, I'll do this thing. Yeah. Then what happens is it's a much easier step to say, I've got five minutes spare. Wow. Just being. <laughs> Nothing else is here. Neither just being. And in just being, it's not that nothing's here. Everything is here. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> my pick of the week comes in two parts. First part... If you haven't been to the dentist lately, 
you should go. Oh. I think sometimes as yoga teachers, we take a lot of care of some aspects of ourselves and a little bit less likely to good, go to the dentist. Good call. Don't leave it for 16 years like <gasps> I did. Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> first part of my tip. Second part, um, I have a recipe for a homemade mouthwash, which was recommended yes. to me by my dentist. And it's so simple. Just water sea salt and bicarb equal mm-hmm. parts mm-hmm. maybe build up to how salty and bicarby you want your water to be and then just a drop of lemon myrtle essential oil yeah. and what it does is if you have an acidic environment in your mm-hmm. mouth you're more likely to get gum disease you're more likely to get tooth decay and this is just an alkalizing mm-hmm. rinse out and refresh mm-hmm. and it took me a while it took my dentist telling me to do this twice in two separate visits but i'm really feeling the benefits now mm-hmm. and i wasn't going for teeth whitening but i've noticed how much whiter my teeth <laughs> oh, look that's great. and so a particular magic of the lemon myrtle so if someone say like mint instead or the lemon myrtle magic was camouflaging the taste of the sea salt and the yeah. bicarb so, so you could use mint or something else yeah lemon myrtle has its own antibacterial properties which i thought yes yeah I, unfortunately tea too would be great but it wasn't taste very nice no no but that, that's what it took for me to actually enjoy using great. this and now i'm like yes every time i'm home had a meal swish 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 and I've also started tongue scraping. Yes, good. Yeah. I, might, I might try your mouthwash. Beautiful. Nice. And my pick of the week is uh, a book called Journeys into Emptiness, yes. Dogen, Merton, Jung and the Quest for Transformation. And it's a great book about these um, three great spiritual and psychological seekers mm. and their commonalities and, and their approach to um, the concept of emptiness. So yes. it's a really great book. And that's by Robert Jingen Gunn. So mm. yeah, check that out. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Thanks for your time and thanks for your insight and wisdom. Thank you so much, Lee. That's fantastic. Can I just finish with what I'd love to finish with when we've sat and talked? I honour the place in you where the entire universe resides. A place of peace, of truth, of love and light. Where when you are in that place in you and I am in that place in me, we are in the same place and we are one. Namaste. Namaste. So there you have it. Lee is an absolute inspiration to me and has been a teacher and mentor to countless other yoga teachers both in Australia and abroad. In our next interview, we will be talking to Pilates powerhouse Louise Torb. Louise is an influential figure in the Australian Pilates scene, having taught countless other Pilates teachers and has an energetic and engaging personality. I'm really looking forward to this one. Just before we leave you, I'd like to ask that you subscribe or rate us on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. It will really help us get the word out there so we can bring this podcast to the world. Finally, we would really love to hear from you. You can drop a note on our website at podcast.flowartist.com, email us at podcast at flowartist.com or look for us on Facebook or Twitter. The theme song in this podcast is Baby Robots by GoSoul and used with permission. Do yourself a favour and get his music from ghostsoul.bandcamp.com. Thanks again. Big, big love.